Welcome to episode 63 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Joshua Novi, a resident at Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell at Southside Hospital, as well as the Secretary-Treasurer of AAEM RSA, speaks with Dr. Ruben Strayer, the Associate Medical Director of Emergency Medicine at Maimonides Medical Center. Today, Drs. Novi and Strayer discuss ketamine for pain in the emergency department. Aloha, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the AAEM RSA podcast series. I'm Joshua Novi, and today I'm joined by Dr. Ruben Strayer, Associate Medical Director of Emergency Medicine at Maimonides Medical Center in Brooklyn, New York. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Strayer. Joshua, it is truly my pleasure to be here. So today we're talking about ketamine. Now, pain can complicate things in the ED. It can be a chief complaint. It may limit our physical exam. It can be caused by life and limb saving procedures in the ED. Pain is such a noxious stimulus that even the anticipation of pain can strike a patient with fear. Dr. Strayer, I've personally seen a child screaming from a hand injury that required open reduction by our ortho team, and with ketamine, it was as if we were treating a completely different patient, all without ever leaving the ED. It is truly a remarkable agent as an anesthetic, but it can be safely used in a variety of other clinical scenarios. Could you tell us where else we should consider using ketamine? Ketamine has a lot of uses for emergency medicine, which is why it's become sort of one of the darling drugs for emergency medicine over the past decade. Ketamine is used, um, has been used classically by pediatricians and pediatric emergentologists and pediatric anesthesiologists to facilitate painful procedures in dissociative dose for um, procedural sedation. So that's when you give a dissociative dose of ketamine, which is greater than one milligram per kilogram intravenously or greater than about four milligrams per kilogram intramuscularly. When you give a dissociative dose of ketamine, the patient becomes dissociated. And that means that they are impervious to um, any external stimuli. So you can perform a complex wound repair or fracture reduction. You can also do open heart surgery using um, dissociative dose ketamine because the patient who is dissociated is awake but unconscious and receives no external stimuli, including painful stimuli. So dissociative dose is what we is the state that we want. So dissociation is the state that we want to achieve when we, for example, are reducing a very painful open fracture, uh, for example, or uh, if we need to tranquilize an uncontrollably violent patient because ketamine it works very effectively by the intramuscular route and will render any person, regardless of how large, angry, intoxicated, or borderline, completely motionless, still quiet and calm while they're airway, breathing, and circulation are in general maintained. So that's a second indication for ketamine in dissociative dose. Another indication for ketamine in dissociative dose is to facilitate intubation uh, as part of an RSI protocol where you would use ketamine as your induction agent. This is just a special type of procedural sedation. Again, you're using dissociative dose to facilitate 
a special type of painful procedure, in this case, endotracheal intubation. And so we use and have been using ketamine as an induction agent in RSI also for many years. Ketamine uh, can also be used in subdissociative dose, in low dose, for analgesia. And in low dose, ketamine provi uh, can provide tremendous analgesic effect without causing the psychoperceptual effects that we see in higher dose. So when you start at a very low dose, let's say 10 milligrams in, an, in a, a normal-sized adult, you will have often a good analgesic effect with minimal psychoperceptual effects. So that person might feel a little funny, but will have nice analgesia, and they'll be awake and talking to you and conversing and walking around. As you push the dose higher, let's say 20 or 30 milligrams in a normal-sized adult, you will have progressively effective analgesia, but you will start to see progressive psychoperceptual effects, which will start with the patient usually claiming that they feel dizzy or funny, and then they become, so there's a derealization phenomenon that occurs where patients report that they're having out-of-body experiences, that they feel as though they've left their body, that they feel disconnected from their bodies and reality. And this culminates in what I call partial dissociation, which is when the patient still has enough synapses connected so that they are conscious. They know that they are alive and that they're a person, but they don't have enough synapses still connected so that they are able to do any of the normal things or perceive things in a way that they find acceptable. So the partially dissociated person will often be unable to move, unable to speak, they're hearing things in funny ways, and they feel as though they are totally disconnected from their bodies. Many folks enjoy this sensation. Indeed, ketamine is used recreationally for this purpose, but many folks find the experience of being disconnected from their bodies and reality terrifying. And if they're still conscious, meaning that they haven't crossed the threshold to dissociation, if they're still conscious, then you can see what, uh, what I call psychiatric distress, ketamine-related, ketamine-induced psychiatric distress. Um, they've also been called emergence phenomena because you most commonly see these phenomena as someone emerges from a dissociative dose. But I don't know, Joshua, if you've ever seen a patient have psychiatric distress from ketamine, but it is very unpleasant. And once you've seen that happen, it's something that you don't want to have happen to you again as a provider or certainly not as a patient. So analgesic dose is a low dose that you can give in a number of different ways. And the goal is to provide effective analgesia, which ketamine does very well, while minimizing the psychoperceptual effects, which you in general don't want. So we talked about ketamine for use as an analgesic. We talked about ketamine for use as a procedural sedation agent as an induction agent in RSI, and as a tranquilizer to calm the uncontrollably violent patient, usually with an intramuscular dose of ketamine. There are any number of other uses of ketamine that are less popular, but emerging. So ketamine is being used as uh, an agent for post-intubation sedation. Ketamine has been used as an anticonvulsant Ketamine is being used as an antidepressant, and in psychiatry circles, there is a lot of chit-chat uh, these days about the
the use of ketamine as an antidepressant, and it has even been touted to emergency medicine as a sort of suicidality reversal agent. Wow. There's, yes, there's data to suggest that um, suicidal folks who get often a subdissociative dose of ketamine or a ketamine infusion over a couple of hours will have their suicidality alleviated. And in some future utopia, we may, may be able to address suicidality directly in emergency medicine with, uh, for example, a ketamine infusion and uh, reverse the suicidality and then potentially send these patients home with psychiatry follow-up, their, their suicidality ha- having been alleviated. We're not there yet, but we, we may see that in the future. I mean, that sounds like something truly novel. I mean, we're here today to talk about pain. The use of ketamine is pain, but I mean, it sounds like there's a whole range of other things that ketamine can be used for. I personally would love to see that happen in the future. Uh, the amount of suicidality that I've seen come to the emergency department, which is often very complex in its etiology, and because it's because psychiatric illness is not often a very organic thing, it's difficult to treat. So that sounds incredible. I've also learned that there may be some indications for use of ketamine in the management of acute asthma exacerbations. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Absolutely. Ketamine has a fairly established role in the management of severe asthma. We don't have great data on this, but the data that we do have suggests that it's effective when given in dissociative dose and not in subdissociative dose. So giving low-dose ketamine doesn't seem to work um, for severe asthma. Um, it's the dissociative dose of ketamine that seems to work. People believe this is because ketamine is thought to have a direct bronchodilating effect. It's an indirect sympathomimetic, so it causes bronchorelaxation. And this is thought to be the mechanism by which ketamine is effective for the treatment of acute severe asthma. There is an alternate theory, which I think is very interesting, which is that asthma can be treated effectively not by directly dilating the bronchioles, but by slowing the respiratory rate. And so there are a few folks out there who advocate for the use of agents that deliberately slow the respiratory rate as a treatment for severe asthma, morphine and fentanyl uh, in this case. I've never used morphine and fentanyl for asthma. I don't know any emergency doctors who have used morphine and fentanyl for severe asthma. But if ketamine does turn out to be an effective therapy for acute severe asthma, then this might be how it works. I should also point out that there's really no role for ketamine as a treatment for mild or moderate asthma because our existing treatments that have many fewer side effects, albuterol being the main one, they're so effective for mild to moderate asthma. So a dose of dexamethasone and an hour of nebulized albuterol and nipotropium is generally all that most patients with mild or moderate asthma need to get through their asthma exacerbation. So there's no reason to subject them to the psychoperceptual effects of subdissociative ketamine or the potential hemodynamic and cardiorespiratory effects of dissociative dose ketamine when we have um, fantastic treatments for mild to moderate asthma. Severe asthma is an entirely different animal, and when you're treating a severe asthmatic who is not responding to your usual measures, nebulized albuterol, ipratropium, steroids, and non-invasive ventilation, magnesium, when that patient is tiring out, doing worse, you're thinking about intubating that patient, that's a scary patient, and that's when you should start thinking about the use of ketamine as a treatment for severe asthma. Thank you for going through that because asthma, asthma is something that we see 
often in the ED. So you you had also mentioned earlier earlier in this discussion uh, that the psychiatric distress that can be precipitated when coming out from ketamine. Are there preventive measures that can be taken by the clinician to spare a patient this distress on top of the pain that you're attempting to manage, which may also be in and of itself distressful? Indeed. So there are a variety of techniques you can use to make the likelihood of of psychiatric distress uh, lower. The first is to uh, effect pre-induction comfort. And the reason is that the way that a person feels as they dis- as they are in the midst of a ketamine trip and as they emerge from a ketamine trip depends on how they feel as they descend into a ketamine trip. So if you, Josh, got a dose of a dissociative dose of ketamine right now, feeling good about the world, you would probably have an enjoyable ketamine trip. But if I was poking you with a cattle prod and also uh, flashing horrifying pictures in front of you and then gave you a dissociative dose of ketamine, you would probably have an awful experience with ketamine. And so we take advantage of that phenomenon by trying to put people into a good place or as good of a place as we can get them before they descend into ketamine dissociation. So in the most common scenario, if you have a patient with uh, a broken arm that you're going to reduce and splint in the emergency department, we want to make that patient as comfortable as possible before they get the ketamine. And that usually means parenteral opioids, which is absolutely appropriate. So you want to affect pre-induction comfort. You want to make that patient comfortable before you dissociate with ketamine. There's also evidence that bringing the patient to a quiet area makes emergence psychiatric distress less likely, or even using calming music. There's data to suggest that that works to prevent psychiatric distress from ketamine. More important, equally if not more important, is being vigilant in monitoring for signs of psychiatric distress when a patient is emerging from ketamine dissociation and aggressively treating psychiatric distress as soon as it occurs, and that can be done with any sort of conventional sedative, most commonly midazolam. And midazolam works very well for psychiatric distress. I've moved to propofol, which also works fabulously well to manage psychiatric distress and also directly addresses some of ketamine's other undesirable side effects when used in dissociative dose, such as hypertension, which is generally not a problem, especially in young people, but occasionally, especially in older people, can be a problem, and then muscle rigidity, which often can occur with ketamine. In most procedures, doesn't matter, but sometimes does matter. For example, if you're trying to do an orthopedic procedure, the muscle rigidity is an unwanted side effect, and both hypertension and muscle rigidity are directly treated by propofol, as well as the psychiatric distress that can occur on emergence. So the way that I use ketamine as a procedural sedation agent is to give it in a dissociative dose, intravenously or intramuscularly. If I gave it IM, I then start an IV, and I have a, I have a syringe filled with propofol on the ready to dose in aliquots of 10, 20, 30, 40, depending on what's going on and who the patient is, as needed to manage psychiatric distress, muscle rigidity, or hypertension as needed. So given the current state of the opioid epidemic, and we're kind of switching gears here a little bit, 
But given the given the state of affairs of this, you know, in 2018, clinicians are being encouraged to emphasize more conservative management of pain before advancing uh, or escalating therapy to the more addictive opioid analgesics. Do you see a role for non-dissociative dosages of ketamine for pain management outside of the emergency department? Uh, so outside of the ED, like home? Yeah. So th- that would be oral oral ketamine, um, assuming you're not sending them home with an infusion and in in, in an intravenous line. And there is a fair amount of data, most of it in the palliative care literature, that uh, attests to the efficacy of oral ketamine. There is no emergency department-based data that I'm aware of. One of the questions that comes up is, let's say uh, I'm managing a patient, let's say a, a, former, a former heroin addict who is at extremely high risk to be harmed by opioids, comes in with a very painful problem, like a burn, and come in and I can manage that pain very effectively with non-opioids, with ketamine, in the department by using low-dose ketamine as a bolus and as an infusion. But that pain from that burn is gonna last for at least a couple of days, if not a little bit longer, and I can't send the patient home with a ketamine infusion, so then what? I personally uh, transitioned to non-opioid, non-ketamine analgesics, and there aren't that many great options, frankly, uh, for outpatient management of severe pain, but there's the potential to send that patient home with oral ketamine. It's just never been done, as far as I know, from the emergency department. We're looking to you, Josh, to be the one to pioneer the use of oral ketamine as a discharge prescription prescription-based therapy for high-risk patients from emergency department. I appreciate your vote of confidence. As a, as a medical student, I'm looking forward to advancing all options for patients to best control their symptoms, their symptomatology, and their chief complaints in the ED as well as outside of the ED. That's about all the time we have today. I want to thank you again for joining us, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of your stay in San Diego. It was my pleasure, Josh. Great to meet you, and great job. Thank you. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, visit the website at www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.